0: Uh-oh, hold on one sec.
1: Okay. Welcome to the Cannabis Marketing Live podcast, where we cover the most effective marketing trends and strategies to grow your cannabis dispensary, delivery service, or brand. I'm your host, Courtney Brown, and today we're discussing from seed to success, the journey of a female cannabis entrepreneur, with Tanya Griffin, CEO of Oh Yes, Uh Huh Honey, Water and Trees, and Kira Reed of C- the CEO of Women Employed in Cannabis. Just to give you guys a little background. Tanya Griffin is a serial entrepreneur with over thirty years of growth management experience, spanning two continents and a number of industries, including cannabis, fintech, healthcare, restaurants, and retail stores. Manufacturing, distribution, marketing, and growth management. She's done it all. And she has continually adapted to her environment and created and run and helped businesses she's passionate about prosper and grow. Tanya couples exceptional business development experience with a smart, positive perspective, uniquely positioned to bring balance, integrity, and common sense back to business. Welcome, Tanya.
2: Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, having yeah.
1: me. And Kira Reed is the founder of Women Employed in Cannabis, the only international association for women working in cannabis hemp and CBD. She is a marketing, branding, and social media expert called a pioneer by Entrepreneur Magazine in 2011 for her cutting-edge work with the legendary Sunset Strip. In 2019 and 2020, she was acknowledged as one of the 100 most important women in weed by Green Market report and awarded the Women's Leadership Award for community activism in 2022. Welcome, Kira.
0: Thank you. I nice am. You.
1: Oh, sorry. I'm. I'm so excited to have you guys both here today. I am really. This conversation is is one I've been wanting to have for a long time. And you know, being Women's Month, let's celebrate and let's support the women out there. The cannabis industry is not the easiest industry always. So. Uh, Everyone, please feel free, feel free to you know ask questions, drop them into the, the chat. We want to make sure this is interactive. And if you have any questions for any of us today, we're happy to answer them. So today we are going to provide an exclusive peek behind the curtain as our guests share their raw and unfiltered journeys to success from facing daunting obstacles to achieving their wildest dreams in our fast-paced and ever-changing cannabis industry. Okay, so I want to start off asking you both the same question but let's talk about pre-cannabis what were you both doing before you decided to get into cannabis and why were you drawn into drawn to the cannabis industry
2: Who would you you like go, to go first, first love <laughs> you're good
0: so before i was in the cannabis industry i had a social media agency that i launched in 2006 or 7 And my focus was the music industry and uh, entertainment. And then as technology with the new social media platforms, et cetera, kind of moved into that space. I became more involved in the tech world. And then eventually, because of some Really disturbing experiences that I had with men in the industry. Um, I pivoted into using the new platforms of social media to educate women on how to start their own businesses online. And this was after the 2010 crash, 2008 2010, when um, a lot of women were starting their businesses online and didn't really understand the mechanisms the tools how you use them but at the same time it was also just this incredible opportunity for women because the social world really indicated to us because the um the bottom line was relationships as opposed to money so it was a fit for women in a lot of ways and so helping to kind of onboard those ladies is then what led me into a deep interest in the cannabis industry i mean i you know, I've been a cannabis consumer my entire life. My mother smoked it when I was growing up. I was, you know, around, I grew up in Northern California in Marin County. So I kind of goes without saying that I was around it quite a bit when I was younger. Um, but, you know, then being in the music industry, we also had a, a very deep interest in cannabis. So as those, as we approached legalization with Prop 64 in 2016, Uh, Women Grow was doing a phenomenal job of, you know, getting out there, getting the message out that this was an opportunity for women in a new industry, unlike anything we had seen before. And I was just so impressed with the work that they were doing, the opportunity for women in the space, you know, my background and understanding of cannabis as medicine, my whole life, it just all kind of came together right around uh, mid 2015, early 2016, as we saw that this was going to happen. So I made my leap then using the lack of marketing and branding available in the industry is really kind of my onboard to meeting people and gaining clients and then quickly pivoting into helping women.
1: Wonderful. I think a lot of people have, you know, experienced and used cannabis for a very long time. And and that is one of the factors in drawing them to it because they understand the benefits and just how wonderful it is. So
0: yeah. And well, you know, to that point, a lot of women are drawn into this space because it's helped them. It's helped someone in their family. It's had miraculous impacts on their life. And so they're drawn out of passion but they lack business acumen or they lack an understanding of just how brutal the cannabis industry can be. And, you know, it's for whatever you have to deal with in business, just as a small business owner. And then you have to layer on top of it, the cannabis piece of it, which is highly regulated, still illegal and you know, deeply contested in a lot of local jurisdictions. So there's just piling on what it takes to actually have a successful cannabis business. But that passion is strong. And, you know, the plant has touched so many lives in such a deep way that, you know, women tend to just power right through that to build their businesses. It's pretty, it's an amazing thing to witness. Absolutely. Tanya,
1: (laughs) I'm going to ask you the same question.
2: So, pre, I always sort of joke when I'm speaking that I, I my journey has gone from uh, colostrum, which is uh, we are women, so it's the early breast milk, to cannabis to come. So, I would say pre-cannabis, I was you know I've been building companies for 35 years now, and my first real chain of retail stores that I had in the U.S. and in Europe were Kangaroo Kids. I sold them; they're still doing great. 35 years later but that was focused on um what was in my world at the time so solving problems in front of me I had you know I was popping out children I had four kids I was breastfeeding and I built you know retail stores um that were um really added value and to and, and the experience to one's life so it was um sold all the products you need, but really helped with um, breastfeeding. And then as you do, when you're solving problems and the analogy to cannabis is I, ended, it, it, nobody wanted to leave. So I ended up, you know, building organic cafes, Mocha Joe's that aligned with it and vintage resale stores. So, um, and that journey just propelled me forward in 2000, really 11 prior to that, I was my company water and trees was building healthcare companies and to, At Kira's point, really, there's, there's, you can have a product in this world, but then you need to create the experience and follow through with that product. And that's true of healthcare. So my segue into cannabis really came in 2011. I was building, you know, some surgical centers and some primary care facility centers in Illinois and realized medical cannabis was coming, you know, to Illinois. And I was, you know, on my second husband, a blues musician, Kira. So had always been in <laughs> rock and roll world, smoking pot in my basement. He was, by the way. I was schlepping kids and building companies and um and realized that cannabis made sense. I'm, you know, Irish Catholic, so we come from deep-rooted destruction from alcohol. And when you look at the comparison between um cannabis and and how it impacts a family relative to something like alcohol, um, to me, it just made sense. I had always been selling, you know, wait and tables since I was 15. So it was just, what am I now going to build a company around to solve a problem and fill a need? And cannabis was interesting because I really um, knew how to build and scale companies, mostly in the healthcare industry, which is also highly compliant, you know, it doesn't have 280E, it doesn't have some of the challenges that we absolutely have in cannabis, but there was a lot of synergy between the two. And I, you know, really just uh, came out to Denver and partnered with what was, you know, certainly one of the biggest companies at that time, young men, scrappy, great entrepreneurs. And I was definitely the old hippie chick in the room called that (laughs) many times. And, you know, and then it became, you know, just daily grinding it out and solving problems. And, you know, fast forward, I, You know, I wrote applications, I won licenses in Illinois, we won the vertical license in Florida and Massachusetts, you know, all over the country and ended up leading our team to build the first vertically integrated national cannabis franchise and the reason for that is because Funding in our industry, because we're a Schedule One drug, federally illegal, has always been challenging. I I would argue never as challenging as it is currently, but it has always been challenging. And we were, you know, navigating, you know, uh, some VCs, but a lot of hard money to, to build our property assets and leverage our property to keep scaling. And and building a, a franchise made sense because trying to capitalize these individual states um, as they were gradually rolling out was untenable um, at that scale. Cause I started alongside all the other MSOs, you know. So it was PharmaCan, CureLeaf, Cresco, GTI, TGS, that that was that was who we all were back in the day in Illinois. And fast forward, I ended up um selling my dissensories to another MSO, and um, meanwhile, continuing my growth management company, which for the last 15 years has just steadily helped scale um, companies, both in healthcare and in the cannabis business. Coming into COVID, um, I built two CPG brands. Oh, uh, yes, two O's, Courtney, um, which is an static sex lifestyle brand. Um, Certainly cannabis-centric, very leaning into 1960s, 70s, sex drugs, and uh, rock and roll vibe. Uh, and then uh, falling out of that, another CPG brand, AHA Honey. Um, and did that as a reaction to where I saw the cannabis industry going, both the Direct to consumer advantages when you are utilizing minor cannabinoids like CBD or CBG, CBN, um, versus the counter challenge of in using THC in your product and what that takes to do. So my brands um, definitely navigate both lanes, um, but do it in a very different way. I coming into COVID, I my background for that you know, had been deeply, deeply rooted in building um, cannabis operations, multi-state cannabis operations, and taking a step back and learning how to work with minor cannabinoids, how to work with traditional retail, hotels, restaurants, um, and work with the consumer while leveraging the advantages of uh, the full entourage effect with THC. Kind of, you know, where I took it, I, I guess the bottom line is every company that I have built over the last 35 years has been um, because I love doing it. I've never chased money. Um, and it's really that high, no pun intended, of continuously solving a problem, you know, of of just trying to make it through not only the roller coaster ride, but you um, know, solving problems and what was so exciting and what is still so exciting about the cannabis industry in my opinion um is that you are you really are working in unpaved territories most of the time and i think that is what uh most attracted me to the to the industry for sure
1: oh my gosh okay that that was a <laughs> A lot and absolutely wonderful. I mean, first question is Do you have any fear? (laughs) And, you know, because the grind of a startup or starting your own business is. Very tough. You have to be everything to everyone all the time. And you know, sales, HR, and you're a mom with four kids with a blues oh, musician, so husband. Those kids
2: are out of the house and uh and I didn't put a oh. spare bedroom in my new condo. So no. Then, but yeah, um
1: but continue. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's just it's such an inspiration, you know, to hear to the you can juggle so many things. And it sounds like you've been a lifelong entrepreneur. So um, you know, you've both built successful businesses in this industry. And I know the entrepreneurial road is a long and winding and arduous one. And, you know, let's walk through your stories and share some of your achievements and challenges. Tanya, I know you kind of covered a lot there, but what inspired you to build or get into, you know, wanting to be a part of a vertically integrated national franchise? Would you well, when that?
2: I, when I came into the picture, it was, I built that. It was not that. So there was operations, um, just in Colorado. I think what you're asking is what inspired you to, you know, jump into the cannabis industry? Because when I came in, it was very new, really Colorado, Oregon was playing. California was a mess. Obviously still is, but Colorado was the only really properly regulated, uh, you know, state at that time. And because I was coming out of building uh, healthcare companies, I had built a company called Connect with Docs, which created a a tech-driven, HIPAA-compliant solution that offered unlimited primary care. I scaled that and once I got it very robust with multiple doctors uh, working under the platform, I hit the the glass ceiling, which is called insurance, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and realized I'd raised a million dollars to do it. I was hustling and realized um, it's going to take a lot more money to fight, you know, to fight the beast here. And that's literally, uh, guys. When I made my my segue, I was sitting in a surgical center. I was building Poulsen and read medical cannabis is coming to Illinois, and it just made sense to me on a number of levels. Uh, the musician in my basement, notwithstanding, <laughs> and it became what all of us do when you're fearless and and willing to take risk. You knock on some doors and you go for it. And um, fortunately for me, um, the cannabis industry very similar to what I, I was in Europe for a couple of years. And I did some work in the film industry, and in the film industry was very similar in that, you know, you you didn't need this long resume to penetrate the industry. You could jump in with. Good skills um, about how to scale industries outside cannabis because you were bringing that experience and knowledge, you know, to the equation. So I think that's really what got me in. And to our to the point of our previous conversation, I don't believe that anyone should be shamed or stigmatized for uh, you know what they're putting in their body, the drugs that they're using. Um, I do think you can make healthier choices. And I think in my humble opinion, that cannabis is a healthier choice than some of our alternatives, particularly alcohol. So for me, that was, um, you know, from the medical standpoint, and when I entered the industry, we were not talking about recreational use, we were not talking about adult use, we were in Colorado. But each state that we conquered, whether it was Florida, Massachusetts, Illinois, all of those states, you were wearing a hat of of really navigating um, and helping epileptic kids, individuals with PTSD. So our world has changed so dramatically. But getting into it, cannabis for me was an extension of of serving the industry in terms of women's and family health, for sure.
1: Now I, I know you went through an acquisition during the your you know franchise years, yeah. so. I know that there are a lot of women out there that are building businesses and they're building the foundations in hopes of, of selling one day. What advice do you have or what were some of the biggest challenges you faced during an m and
2: I'm going to answer this in two ways. One, um, this, we always joke that this thing moves in dog years, but I think it's moving quicker. So what, what I went through, you know, even two years ago, three years ago, when I was selling, you know, um, Dispensaries in Illinois to an MSO is very different than what we're doing now and very different than my brands that I have built. Um, One of the, the, there's a couple of bit of advice I would bid. One, back in the day, I was able to really hold my ground, you know, and not get pushed back into a corner. Um, I think a lot of the deals that I've done over the last several years, no matter what the industry, um, the positive outcomes have been largely impacted by the partners that I have chose, by the position that I have put myself at that point when you're finally, you know, flipping the deal. Because the deal changes the most in the 11th hour, I would argue. Fast forward to now, we're in a very different space in cannabis. When I was navigating the space back then and raising money and and, and, um, and exiting, we were 30, 40, times EBITDA, like where we we are no longer living in that pipe dream. So my advice to any woman starting a, a company in the cannabis industry or, you know, by extension, uh, a hemp driven cannabis centric, you know, business is to mind your partners and run this like you're running any other small business. You know, the restaurants that I've owned, kangaroo kids that I've mentioned, you um, you know the bookstore all the things that i have built and 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 operated and exited over the years has been because i didn't live in this pipe dream that there was going to be a you know a 40 times ebitda i was going to exit for 10 million you've got to stay grounded and and with any business i mean some i guess the biggest trick that i have learned over the years in scaling companies is First and foremost, you know, that your team is critically, critically important. Build build people around you that are smarter than you. I know people say that all the time, but it is so true. And then from the perspective of the product that you're selling or what the business that you're offering to others, you know, that needs to create an enjoyable experience and it needs to add value. And that comes from an authentic place. If you can get that and, and stop... Chasing money, so just don't chase the exit because the exit is elusive. You've got to build organically a company that can stand on its own two feet. In my opinion, if you can do that, the exit yeah. is In my opinion,
1: so true, absolutely. Yeah. I see that a lot. People are kind of just running for the end line or the end zone it's and hoping, and it's not going to work.
2: Now, I, yeah. I would even argue, t- you know, a year ago that pipe dream was still, you know, tangible. Um, It is no longer, in my opinion. You've got to be able to go lean, Courtney. Um, Like right now, having a couple of brands, and I'm 100% self-funded. So I have kept myself in a position where I maintain control. But what that also allows me to do is pull back to a very lean position if I need to. If I had taken on uh, you know, heavy investment investor partners, VCs, angels, whatever that is, the, the the amount of weight on my business would not let me be as mobile and be able to pivot in the way that I, I I'm able.
1: Yeah, that's very that's a fair point. That really yeah. is. Kyra, Kyra, sorry. sorry. I would like in your bio, you mentioned the sunset strip project and I'm not aware of that. And I'd love to, for you to elaborate on that. And then of course you have had a huge announcement recently with the partnership with the Panther group. So I do want to make sure we touch on that as
0: well. So my work with the sunset strip goes back, I guess, 2006, um, which I can't believe it was almost 20 years ago. And for some reason it's still relevant um, so I had been managing bands at the time and had been, um, in intrigued, I guess is the best way to put it about this new concept called blogging. And what I really found fascinating was that in these blog roles, right, which is they would recommend other blogs that were producing the exact same kind of content that they were. And not only that, but then they were taking their content and sharing it on their blog and vice versa. And this had never happened. You know, in marketing, it is very much fiercely competitive. You don't share, you don't cooperate, you stay in your lane and you fight like hell for the audience. (laughs) So I was very interested in learning more about what was you know, to become known as really the open source revolution, where it was all about collaboration, coopetition. So I met the owner of the Roxy Theater, who came from a very legendary family. His father was Lou Adler and the Monterey Pop Festival Cheech and Chong, and started the Roxy Theater. And, you know, we come to the mid-2000s and the Sunset Strip had lost its shine. It was a boulevard of has-beens. When I started working with the Roxy, my friends in the music industry said, you know, don't think we're ever going to go to the Roxy just because you're working with them. Are you sure you want to do that? And I sat down with the owner one day and we had a very long conversation where I explained to him this new ideology that I saw emerging and how that was a new way to kind of take opportunity to be innovative and revitalize himself. He loved the idea because deep in his heart, I think Nick really is a community builder. And so everything that I said to him really resonated with him. And he said, okay, we're gonna do this. And so for three years, we used social media and the technology available to us. I mean, I think we were number 19,000 on Twitter. So we were super, super early. And we got on, started building our audience, started bringing kind of this new transparency and way to engage with our audience. And then the Viper Room, uh, hired a new digital marketing director. So we welcomed them on Twitter and that started a relationship with them. And then the comedy store had just hired a new digital director and he said, Hey, I want to join the party too. So we started what was called the social strip where we got all of the organizations who were interested in participating with us together. And we started the first tweet crawl. And we went from the Roxy to the Ondas, the Viper Room to the comedy store with, you know, 40 or 50 people. And they got deals at each spot and they tweeted. And I think we produced about 100,000 tweets out of that event. And we just one thing after another, I mean, I have so many stories from that time that are so interesting about, especially at the time, because nobody had ever done things like this before. We had one person who had tweeted about a a weak drink, and Nick saw it upstairs one night and walked downstairs, got a top-shelf drink, walked all over the club to find her and handed it to her and said, you will <laughs> never have that experience at the Roxy again. So it was a lot of fun to be able to use this technology in a way to do things differently in a really positive um, way that, that made a difference for the artist and for our attendees and for the Roxy as a whole. Fast forward several years, we ended up producing The Sunset Trip Music Festival, where we shut down several blocks of the street, had huge artists play, was very successful. And then uh, Golden Voice ended up buying the Roxy, um, I believe it was about 2013, 2014. And so that whole experience, I then went to Santa Monica and did the same thing in a different version with Main Street. And so utilizing those tools, I really saw the power of community. And when you bring people together and you give them tools to communicate and share and support each other, you really can revolutionize an industry or, uh, you know, in our case, it was business districts. And It was so exciting watching all of this happen because it just flew in the face of everything I'd been raised to believe that I honestly didn't like. I didn't like being competitive. I didn't like feeling like everything was a competition. You know, I really loved this idea of being able to work together. And Nick would always say, you know, we... We used to fight over this, every dollar that came onto the strip. And now we believe a quarter for you, a quarter for you, a quarter for you. It keeps people here and, and raises the whole profile of the strip. So that's that's what happened there.
1: That would be wonderful it to have happen with retailers in the cannabis industry because this race to the bottom and everyone fighting. Yeah. You have to have brand loyalty to keep your doors open. You certainly do, but I love that idea. What about a 420 crawl where you go to like, I mean, there are dispensaries across the street from dispensaries in big urban areas, get together. I love what you did. That's amazing. And I mean, so inspirational and we could all learn from that because we have such a strong sense of community because we're all in the cannabis industry, but I don't see that in the way that you, you unified that in, in, um, down in LA.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, the only city I've actually seen do something like that besides LA is Asheville, North Carolina. They've really, they're brilliant what they do with the I heart Asheville and, you know, but that whole, that whole area is community-based. And I was really excited when I got into the cannabis industry. I mean, that's why WEIC is successful because it isn't just us. We partner with tons of other organizations. We support a lot of women in the industry and what they're doing. They support us. We are a community. It is not, I did not build WEIC so that I could be an influencer. This isn't about me. This is about the community. And it's not something that most people do. Most people want to take the spotlight themselves and build their brand, which is great. I mean, that's fine, but if you're going to build community, you don't do it by making it about yourself. And as much as I think the cannabis industry does have the um, the leanings to do that because of our history, where so much of the uh, existence of the cannabis industry as a legacy industry was reliant upon those relationships. You couldn't survive without those relationships. But I think we've really devolved into what I think is kind of probably the biggest issue with marketing and branding around the industry too. is like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to sell $20 joints to kids who want to get high all day. I'm going to make my money and that's it. I don't care. And you know, that is obvious because you walk into 90% of dispensaries and they have terrible music playing and their bud tenders are pushy and they don't give a shit about the person in front of them. And you don't really feel like I mean, you just feel like you walked into a drugstore, right? You don't feel like you walked into something that you could be a part of, that there's something bigger going on here that, you know, I'm, I'm super impressed with how the industry deals with no, no, it, because the people who own the dispensaries by and large, and I say this, you know, with some serious resentment in my voice because I worked with so many women who want, what's that? We hear it. (laughs) You know, we talk about, oh, you know, I want to build this dispensary. I've been there too. I wanted to build a dispensary in Santa Monica that was focused on women and focused on the community. And even though the city of Santa Monica said, that's what we want, who did they give it to? Not even somebody from the community who understood the community. So, and what did they do? They came in and they do what everyone else does. They create an environment where they can turn and burn the sales. And that is all they care about. So, you know, I look at the, the dispensaries that are focused on women, very, very few and far between, but we were just in Boston for an ECAN. We went into two different dispensaries. One was owned by a woman and the environment and the way we were treated from the music that was playing to the calm environment. And the, the woman let us take our time. The bud let us take our time. She answered our questions and there was no one in there but us. We went over to the dispensary owned by guys. We were disrespected. We the budgender was such a condescending little prick to us that we were uh, ushered around. There was there was no environment that made us feel like I'm coming back here. So why is it that the positive environment is the one where there are fewer women? There's no customers in there. Like I see, so when you see that over and over again, it just reinforces this competitive, male-dominated, turn and burn at the register attitude. So I wish I wanted it to be that way when I got in. That's what I was angling to do, but I've had to give that dream up because it just
1: don't give it up because it will yeah, de- be what rises to the top. You know, we'll see. Like,
2: yeah. We'll see. Where well, I have, have found it a dispensaries right now in Illinois female driven. And I hope you're going to like them because the music will be fucking awesome. I hope so. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, we'll be there. I think we're going to be there for um, the green market report women's summit in um, August, I believe. Obviously.
2: Oh, I'll have to, maybe I'll go I'll. I'll so, try to
0: yes. Go. Uh, and I would love to check it out. You know, I, I want there to be more of this. That is why I built this community for yeah. women so that we could find each other, support each other, look out for each other.
2: I, I agree with all of that. I, I am a little concerned with your analogy that there was nobody at the more holistic female centric, uh, dispensary. I, and you know, when, when, I kind of mentioned earlier that when I've built companies over the last too many years, it's really been about adding value and creating an experience. The challenge when you're doing these dispensaries and the reason why all of us, women, men, all of us have kind of leaned into this Apple model, right? So we're all doing the same dispensary. They all look like cookie cutters is we are navigating a space that is not only so heavily burdened by compliance, but a tax burden that is formidable. You, you, yeah. It's hard to work around. So I, I don't know, having, you know, created these as a female and wanting to, to create the same objectives that you have mentioned, there's um, there are challenges in that. And that is that, you know, all of your profits go to the government. So you've got this (laughs) challenge in creating that experience. And like, you know, Illinois is a good example. That's where I'm currently building dispensaries. And, you know, um, the entry for this, you know, we'll spend a million five just to get a dispensary open. So it's, these are not cheap roads to travel. Um, They're never just female in these new, more lucrative states. You know, you've got a team, but if you, I think to your point, If you can navigate these experiences with community cooperation, that's including the bud tenders, how you treat people, you will create a different experience in that dispensary. Now, what you two do in the world of marketing and getting the message out that, too, is important. So there's two sides to me. And when I look at marketing and I'm a am a baby and you guys are the adults in the room. But what I have learned just out of experience is build something authentic, build it out organically and create so much value in your current customers. that that they keep coming back. So like in when when I was waiting tables, you tried to sell dessert, right? So increase that ticket sale. So that slower, methodical, considerate experience should shine provided it's coupled with enough um, push and that costs money to drive, you know, drive those people in the door. So your male counterpart that was churning and burning and catering, to, as you said, the $20 joints or the, the predominant uh, sales in the industry. Like at that time, you're, it's probably a all still a 70-30 split with flower. And those are people that are regular users. They want to be in and out quick. They don't want a holistic experience. And so the model necessary, because I've been on the inside of building these companies, the model necessarily shifts so that you can keep the lights on and that is the challenge of of throwing the spa and the yoga studio alongside the cannabis dispensary and why you've got to pick a lane and stay focused, both men and women, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean,
1: well, when you're first starting to build a business, like, yes, stay in the lane, you have to be revenue focused and everybody needs to be a marketer, please.
0: (laughs) Everybody needs a marketer. (laughs) When you, back to this original point, which is, you know, the number one dispensary in my entire area is a wholesaler. So, or a a clearance house. So basically they buy all the product that's sitting on the shelves about to expire, Mm. reduce it and sell it. Mm. They're killing it. Mm -hmm. They have no environment. There's a super high turnover in their bud tenders. I don't think I've ever seen the person in the same person in there twice. You cannot rely on product, but it's driven by price. And so until our
2: consumer changes,
0: that's the bottom
2: a, line is price, price, yeah. price, price. I don't believe price is always the, mo- I mean, obviously there's, there's several paths. We can look at the alcohol industry. We can look at the, you know, the movement from craft to, you know, and the circular events of that. I, I I have never built a business where um, it's a race to the bottom. Now, having said that, when you're in the middle of a multi-state operator, you do throw out discount stores and that has absolute value and drives a, a certain customer base, but both can exist just as both of those brands can exist. One that is, you know, value added erased to the bottom in terms of cost uh, and one that is um, a more luxury item. So I do think they can both uh, 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 exist. Yeah. And in this economy, Kara, I understand why the lines are out the door yeah. for the, you know, for the... Yeah out-of-date products and grabbing that stuff. So it does make sense.
0: So, you know, back to the original point of building community, you know, when it comes to building community among the cultivators, that's a very strong, it's inherent in their DNA really to work together. But once you move out of that, once you move into the other parts of the supply chain, that community, that coopetition, it really starts to, to fray and fall apart until you get to the point at retail where it's kind of look, and look, I will admit I'm coming from California. So it has been so brutal for the last few years and it's not getting any better. And we had the opportunity to lead and we're falling behind. So, you know, a lot of the resentment you're hearing in my voice (laughs) is coming from the last six years of like, this, you know, a while getting punched in the face and kicked in the teeth okay. and sand thrown in your eyes and, you know, losing your buddies along the way. And, you know, watching all of this, these great things that you've been watching people build just collapse around you. It's just, it's really painful. It's, I've never experienced anything quite like it. And for the amount of optimism and the amount of energy that has gone into building a really positive energy that is equitable and just and fair and gives people marginalized people an opportunity to watch that slipping away right now. It's just, it's very hard to do. So, you know, I'm at a disadvantage in California because, you know, I'm shrouded in this negativity and and this massive amount of loss that we've gone through. So I do like to hear, you know, some optimism from newer states that, can benefit from where we've gone wrong and start fresh. So I'm happy to hear what you're saying.
2: Come out to sunny Colorado. Or uh, (laughs) like, I I think there is optimism in the industry and we can navigate this space. Courtney, you haven't gotten a word in. That's
1: okay. (laughs) Right, you know, you guys have touched a lot of really great points. And uh, Kira, I don't think that we've talked about your partnership with the Panther Group. Thank you. That's going to be really important. (laughs)
0: This is, you know, on the one hand, as you mentioned, there is no money in the industry. California, regardless of what you're doing, how successful you are, do you have real estate assets, whatever, you're not getting money. That's just the way it is right now. So, you know, focus on friends and family, but in general- after six years, I have realized that the number one thing that women actually need, I mean, I've been doing a lot of things that I believe they need across the board in their careers. And it's been great. We've built an incredible community, but it hasn't really moved the needle because as I've grown, we've also watched our numbers slip. Fewer women are in the C-suite. Fewer women are getting funded. I mean, We only received nationally in 2022, there was something like $238 billion awarded through VCs. Guess how much women got? 1.9%. We got $2 billion nationally across every industry of all the money that was handed out in 2022. So you put that lens on cannabis and you know it's even less. Yet women statistically produce a faster and higher ROI on their investments than than men do. They have less employee turnover. They have happier customers. They're faster to ROI. I mean, you name it. Women own it. When we get money to build a business, we hire women. We hire diversity candidates. We grow businesses in a much different way that is much more successful for an investor. Yet, So we are facing these two realities. We get no money, but we're better at managing it and growing it. So we have to, somebody has to step into that space and start analyzing why does this happen? Because if we're just looking at the very end of the cycle here where you're sitting in front of an investor and he doesn't recognize himself in you, therefore we're not getting money okay, that's a big problem, but there are other problems leading up to that, that we can address. I can't make an investor give a woman money, but I can help them get totally prepared so that when they're sitting in front of that investor, he has no choice, but to tell her yes. So I started realizing this last year that I can't make much of a difference with no, no matter what I do until we address this issue, because it really is a top-down thing. You get money in the hands of women for their businesses. They will hire other women. They will promote other women. We can start changing the game. So uh, Panther Group had reached out to me early last year because they were really interested in supporting more women. I spent some time getting to know them. Really an incredible group of people who genuinely want to help. They are not using this as leverage. They are not using this for PR. They have been actively T- listening, really trying to understand how do we make this change? And so we decided, look, it's, I was looking for money last year. I've been through the process and I was unsuccessful at it. So we decided, well, what's, what's the other thing on the table right now? Well, let's do an m a So we figured out how to come together because you know, obviously I have a very large community. I have some credibility and respect in the industry that was going to be beneficial to them. So we merged. And what they have allowed me to do to begin with is I wrote a in collaboration with the Panther Group, um, a, down, a free download called the Roadmap to Funding. And this really lays out some very important things that women need to know. And honestly. It's a very painful thing to have to say, but it needs to be said. A lot of women who are looking for funding do not have a viable business to receive funding. And so we get misled into thinking that, you know, we can do this. I just need a little more information here. I just, I'm going to spend some money putting a pitch deck together. I'm going to, I'm going to give away my equity so that I have the right partners. And they don't even have a business that will ever make it to the front line. So we need to get women educated about what it means to have a viable business for funding. Don't worry about what the investors are going to think or your exit or any of that. Do you have a business that can that can take money right now and produce a return on investment for its investors? I don't want women wasting time and money in a, from an uneducated space. We were in NECAN. We had a conversation with a woman and we walked away going, she's she's lost it because she's spent all of her money on marketing and branding. She doesn't have the money she needs to develop other things. She's unless she has friends and family that are going to infuse her with cash, she's done and she doesn't know it. So now here we have another woman that is going to suffer from burnout, from financial destitution or debt and never be able to come back to that place and start over again. So they really are working with me to help women avoid this to help them get educated. So it started with the roadmap to funding. It's available for anyone who wants to download it to really work through and make sure you've got a viable business. The next step is we're launching a mentoring program around the roadmap to funding so that you can work with professionals and get your questions answered and get real advice, not smoke blown up your butt about, you know, all of the opportunity, but meanwhile, you don't even know what a pro forma is. So you've got to get these basic fundamental building blocks right. You have to understand what you're going to be up against when you're pitching for funding. You need to understand your nomenclature and the terms that that are exist there. And then you will be ready. Then you will actually be ready. And so we want to carry you to that point where you can now sit in front of an investor with confidence, with moxie, and you can get them to give you the money. So. I I will also be working with them on doing some some things some business development channel partner development for their business but a lot of my focus and our focus now is changing the scale for women through these touch points and then once we have that template really working we're going to pivot that into the social equity space as well because you know we women and minorities people of color but not just people of color also veterans also the disabled also the elder like there's a lot of people in this industry who bring a tremendous amount of value who don't have access who don't have an on-ramp to success as an entrepreneur who really want it so that's that's really the purpose of us coming together
1: Um, love, 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 underscore, love that. That's absolutely incredible. Something that's so needed and what we're, you know, our space and just period, the mentor part really makes my heart sing because it, it is so hard to find a good mentor in any industry, someone that's actually willing to mentor you, finding somebody that's smarter to you than you to mentor you. That's been, you know, struggles that I've seen. Um, uh, and that's just so so fantastic. I did have a question, maybe veering off a little too much, but do you help women understand where the opportunities lie and in the cannabis industry? So instead of just saying, Hey, I want to create a brand you know, an edible brand saying, "Mm, probably not the best time to do that in your particular state. You probably want to do X, Y, Z, or, you know, do you help
0: them in that way? I think, you know, it's very hard to do something like that when you're serving kind of a national audience. We can, in the moments with whoever we have as our guests, discuss those things, but I mean, it's a constant moving target. So what may be true in California is not going to be true in Illinois, but six months from now, that might we could flip. We could be completely opposite from where we are now. I think the more important focus is if you're looking at your business plan, right, which is something a lot of women don't do, you've got to have a plan, You've got to look at your customers, You've got where they're going to come from, why are they going to buy from you, what is your competition? So if you really, truly do a good competitive analysis, you will be able to see, like for instance, in California, we went from having 3,800 brands two years ago to 1,700 now. Mm-hmm. So it's not a hard fact to find if you live in this area and you start asking around and doing your competitive analysis, you'll be able to see... God, we've lost a lot of edible brands. Maybe that's not really the way to go right now. Looking at what has been funded recently, I mean, again, in California, nothing, but there are ways that you can look for yourself in your area to really make sure that before you present this to an investor, you're on lockdown. You got it. You know inside and out exactly why Your business will be successful. And, you know, I really do want to encourage any women listening to this do yourself a favor and get really, really honest with yourself. What is your plan? Who are your customers? And what is your competition? Don't talk yourself into it because you're so passionate about it. You will mislead yourself. Be honest about what is really going on in the industry because it's, if you have too rosy of a picture, nobody's going to believe you because things are not rosy right now. <laughs> so I hope that answers your question. You know, it's it's really, it's just a constant moving target in this industry. What is working and what isn't, you know? Right now, there's no money coming in. So we're recommending debt and M&As. That's really the way to do it right now. But what kind of companies are you know, prime right now to be acquired? Who is going to be giving out uh, debt, you know, what kind of debt vehicles are available right now. I will say that cannabis is, again, really innovating when it comes to debt options. So look, be willing to look at different things. And also, I think the most important thing, I just want to get this plug in, is that as you've got, funding is not something that you do when your back is against the wall and you need money or you want to not work your second job. Funding is a long, long, Term strategy. It is going to take you six to eight months to get that money in the bank anyway. And once you go down that path, (laughs) I know you can speak to this, Tanya, is that once you go down the path of fundraising, you're a fundraiser and your investors are going to want to know,
2: right? Comment on that point. Yes. I think that when you're navigating this space, choosing those partners and, and and staying strong, even though you feel like you're pushed in a corner and that it's your only solution, taking some of those deals will, will end your company, quite frankly. And, and when I mentioned, you know, about my brands, the reason why they're doing so well right now is because I am able to pull back, pivot and be very lean when I need to. And I think when I'm listening to you speak, You know, when I came out of building traditional businesses, and I always mentored other women through the last 35 years, and I did multiple large SBA loans for traditional businesses. And one of the things that we was always the focus in SBA loans is not how much money you have in the bank necessarily. It was always about experience. So those women who are out there thinking they're going to jump into this industry, I would argue, go learn what you are doing go work for someone get some experience it is not always rosy and you've got to have you know a solid stomach to manage even being an entrepreneur because you know the, the one of the reasons i would argue that i've had multiple successful companies is i was not afraid of the lights getting turned off, so I understood the roller coaster ride. You know, I'm the oldest of ten kids. We never had any money. There was never money around, so going from from zero to you know several million was was a swing that was just part of the ride. So if you're not driven by the end result of an exit or money in that way now I always caution when I say that because you have to focus on the bottom line this is about money and ultimately if you bring on friends and family my god guys those are the scariest you're indebted to those people so if you're going to take on friends and family money um you better know what you're doing right and 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 um and get some experience and and build yourself a team that fills in the gaps where you are not strong, in my opinion. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course.
0: How did you go from struggling with money to over a million and not deal with imposter syndrome? Or did you?
2: Oh, I, I saw that on the Academy Awards. Imposter syndrome is you're afraid to... I It was probably my upbringing. I was always you're just absolutely fearless so I never and my dad was just always starting companies, most of them failing but I because I watched that from the inside um if I had money and an idea, I would always roll the dice right and then you just then it's that series of problem solving and you know you you get a high from that, so that creativity. So when you're building a company, there's nothing more exciting and the highs and the lows are, are part of that. So I would argue that it was my skill, maybe as a female of living in denial. I'm very good. at <laughs> Oh, I was able to compartmentalize the stress and carry on basically. And then, you know, you always get another, you, there's always another day. So with experience, what you learn, and I hope other women can learn this also through experience, but you start to learn that the sun comes up the next day, you know, and and here's my biggest advice that I, I, I love to give to women is don't react on a dime, sleep on it. So if somebody's pushing you to get a deal done or sign something in the 11th hour where the deal terms have changed, it can wait so you learn that with experience you learn that you know that call you don't have to call that call back right away you don't have to react to somebody's pressure right away and that it's always clearer the next morning and and it's hard to do that because particularly i think it's hard as women we are naturally nurturing. We don't like to let calls sit. We want to accommodate other people. We want to make everybody happy around us. So our our natural instinct is to jump in, solve the problem, and accommodate. And if you can learn um, to take a pause, to take a breath, which clearly you and I don't know how to do, <laughs> <laughs> then suddenly you're in a much better place, and you're going to make decisions um from a more clear-headed position because when you make the wrong decisions and i've made plenty of them so many of them and the worst decisions i think you could make are jumping into bed with people um that are not your your gut tells you they're wrong but what happens in these deals is everybody's dancing and when you're newly in love everybody's fucking. it's all good and 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 that goes south. So you got to enter these relationships poised for dis- divorce. And that's hard to do. You know, when everybody's locked in arms and singing kumbaya. So that experience alone um has taught me a lot. It's taught me to be more reserved in how I jump into deals. It's probably why I why I'm still self-funded because I've been offered money, but I have been very and, and and in retrospect kira i'm so happy that i did it because coming into this downturn economy companies like mine that can pull back stay lean pivot when everyone else falls and this is i think this is particular to cpg brands when everyone else falls in 12 months over the next 12 months i'm still trucking I am. I'm still moving because I can pull back and and go lean. So don't think, entrepreneurs out there, that your world has, you know, you've done what you needed to do once you've closed that Series A or gotten that first round of, of friends and family money. That is the beginning of your challenges. It is by no means the end. The work starts after that money comes in. Everything else is a hustle and it's a, it's, it's, it's a tiring, you know, I, I did the money run, you know, the, the fundraising trail. I lasted maybe three months. Now I've raised money for other big companies very successfully, but on my own terms, um, I didn't last long. I didn't like the dance. It was a lot of, you know, uh, fruitless meetings where you think you're all going the right way, but then with experience, you start to learn you're only wasting your time. And if you pivot and put your time into building a solid foundation, building a company that yes, adds value, drives experience, builds on community, gets other people in your world drinking the Kool-Aid, whether that's friends and family or that's your team, you know, your accountant, your lawyer, um, other young women that you are mentoring, I'll tell you a trick that I have done that I that may be a feminine quality in running companies, maybe it's not, but with OES, for example, I, I have mentored multiple other young companies that are women-led that I think are very um, uh, Add value to, oh, yes, why I add tons of value to them. Whether that's, you know, we, we do yoga activities all the place. We do speed dating events. And those partnerships where I am able to mentor other CEOs, help build up their companies. We built, for example, a sex quiz, the oh, yes, sex quiz, where you say, oh, yes, so oh no, maybe so. To a hundred different sex acts, but we get thousands of emails In this process, which allows me then to build community and, you know, through other value added things that these individuals are like, whether that's yoga, whether that's a class on oral sex, whatever that may be, we're allowing other companies not to you know, create the company and steal that idea, but to partner with them so that both companies rise. It's what you did with a strip, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same concept of what you did with a strip. If everybody, if the tide rises and everyone rises, that is a good thing. And you're leveraging by doing that, the communities of those other companies. And of course I focus on women-led companies because that's your heart. You know, you know by instinct that we as women do manage our worlds differently. We treat Mm -hmm. people a little differently. We often aren't just focused on the bottom line. Not that we are not focused on the bottom line, because I think that is a um, danger that women are ever understood as just creating something that is not focused on solvent business, a good, strong business. We are doing that but there's a way to cooperate with others and do things differently. And I, I would argue, finally, my biggest advantage in this world is I never, you know, coming out of waiting tables, I, I I, opened my first restaurant. So I was never in a place where there was a glass ceiling or I was working truly in a corporate atmosphere. So I never watched or had to emulate that male culture, because I was always slightly outside of it and always felt like the boobs were to my advantage. Like (laughs) I never, ever thought being a female wasn't an advantage in any meeting I was at. It's very disarming. Those of you who are women. So So basically
1: Tanya doesn't have imposter syndrome
2: (laughs) (laughs) and never has. (laughs) sorry. (laughs) No, that's fine. I mean, it's. I think that's what you think. You're fearful to be in the position, right? Something like that.
0: Well, that you don't necessarily. You you feel like an imposter, you know. So I don't feel like an imposter. You're, you know, doing the things that you want to do. You feel like, do I really deserve to be here? People are going to realize that it's not so much fear. It's more a kind of a fear of being found out. You know they're going to realize that I'm not qualified. They're going to realize oh, no, I'm not good
2: at this. That. I mean, we're all just trying to make this thing work. It's like every day is a series of problem solving. And I guess my gut tells me I can do it as well as the next guy. I you love know, it. Awesome. It
1: Who's to say that? I, know, I, I love it. I every day I think you know I, I know how many people are out there just like shaking in their boots, and I think it's a lot of you know the corporate ranks. Definitely that, that have that, that imposter syndrome because you just never know. And, you know, companies are laying off a lot of people right now and it's really, it's a tough, uh, space to be in now. I have, do you guys have like five more minutes? Yeah. Okay. I just have one more question because, you know, and Kira, you touched on this slightly before, but I was reading an article the other day and it was really impactful to me. And I want to get your perspectives in the terms of, you know, cannabis lens. So I'm going to read the passage, but it says the majority of fortune 500 companies with a female CEO are typically more profitable than those helmed by a male CEO, because by the time the woman makes it to senior leadership and has overcome the additional barriers to rise to the highest executive ranks by default, she must possess additional leadership and performance characteristics versus the average executives who didn't face those same barriers. Today, the vast majority of senior executives across all industries are men, and a unique investment opportunity arises when one considers the consistent track record of female outperformance. So this is like known, but not practiced, and you know there are other. Um, investment companies that are focusing solely on women owned businesses outside of the cannabis industry as well. And they're doing, and they're paying the returns that they're paying are like much higher than the ones that are, you know, not including those. So I just, I want to get your insight into what you make of the statement and why do you think the cannabis industry continues to lag behind others in terms of building female leadership teams? Like we have the chance now we're starting, we're pioneering new front. Why Why don't we see more female leaders in this space? And we do need to be concise because I know you guys got to get out of here.
0: So quickly, it is historical. So if we look back at the film industry, if we look at the tech industry, women basically started these industries. In fact, in technology, it was relegated to being a woman's job back in the day because, no guys wanted to sit in front of a computer and do that in the film industry it was mainly women who are the producers the directors the writers we dominate new industries that's what we did when cannabis started but what happened in the film industry they had to move indoors with talkies they needed corporate money who does the money come from the men who do the men want running the company other men same thing with tech oh this is lucrative they push the women out The money comes in, they take over. That's exactly what's happened in cannabis. Women were so strong at the beginning of this industry in 2017, 37% of executives were women. Now, I don't even know, it's 18, 19% with way more women in the industry because corporate money comes in and men see themselves, they want to see themselves in the person that they give the money to. It's you know, a few years ago, Facebook released an AI program that reviewed resumes. It started pushing out women resumes from women, and I don't necessarily think that the coders made it sexist, but the ways that they evaluated the value and worth of each resume was based on how men write resumes, not women. So at every turn, that's what happens. We get pushed out, we get pushed down, we are devalued. I don't know, I, I I mean, look at how many, how many hugely successful billionaire women do you know that are not celebrities?
2: I take a different approach to this. I agree with what you're saying. And, but and I, my point it, is that
0: not that they don't exist, but yeah. that we don't celebrate them. That, that don't I don't call them correct. up the way we do men. So I, it's not normalized.
2: We That's right, we, we've got, taking a glass half full approach to this, We've got some awesome women in this industry. I mean, Nancy, we've got some really strong players, and I think that if we continue to normalize that and talk about it, it will um, we will regain that momentum. I mean, I I think that organic growth and the the proof is in the pudding. We do do a good job running companies. I think we have a danger um, if the conversation shifts too much to woe is me and this isn't fair, Um, we run a risk of, of, of la, 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 nobody hears us. So I think if we consistently point to winners in our industry and then we show how effective we are in building these companies successfully, that can help you know, move the pendulum. And we have to remember too, we're not just baby makers anymore. We have a lot of fucking money. So we as women can invest in other women. Now we're scared to do it because we have also been raised I'm 54, right? So I have been raised in a in a in a atmosphere where men did have those roles. So seeing women in those powerful positions is new and it is exciting but women themselves can change this we know how to run a family we know how to run a company we're very good at it so women making those decisions to put our money behind other women will change this culture and part of that i believe is going to come from having powerful women, whether it's your woman from Spanx, who I'm so impressed with, Nancy, and, what a and brand, yeah cannabis industry. If we look at that and say, look, this is what works. This is how you can treat people. And this is how you can grow a company that is based on solving a need, authentically and organically growing it and scaling it. We're going to get to the other side of this. Listen, it's it's happening quick. Even though we probably, as you said, you said we were at I think thirty seven percent, and we're now at eighteen percent. That's pretty heartbreaking. But the whole industry is just taking a giant shit. So we have to acknowledge that women are a part of that problem, but we are also on a path that is moving at lightning speed of illustrating how strong we are in this environment and how capable we are of scaling um, companies.
0: Well, I would also like to point out that we don't celebrate women who, are so, have run solvent businesses that, pay, you know, meets their payroll every week right, and, yeah. you know, pays their health insurance and ha- creates a, a stable environment for the people that work for them. For some reason, we only glorify and praise people who've taken millions of dollars and had a major exit. But there's a massive swath of women who run very successful businesses you'll never hear of Because they just keep their head down and do the work and produce great products and have great companies where people are very happy working for them. So we also, I think, need to start celebrating that woman because not everybody wants to spend their life doing fundraisings and exits, you know, and building that kind of business. But it doesn't mean it's not completely valid and valuable to the industry to have that kind of business as well. Yeah, I
2: agree.
1: Thank you both so much <laughs> this was energetic, passionate. I think there's a few more F-bombs than my boss will like. But... <laughs> can
2: you beat those out? No, it's fine. need women to cuss like sailors. <laughs>
1: um, I do want to take a moment before we sign off where you both can tell everyone where they can reach you. So whoever wants to start.
0: Okay. Uh, you can reach me at Kira Reed pretty much anywhere across any platform. It's Kira Reed. Um, Women Empowered in Cannabis, B-I-Z. It's Women Empowered in Cannabis on Facebook. Join our Facebook group. It's free. Um, cannabis.com and the ThePantherGroup.co. And then if you are interested in the roadmap to funding, roadmap to funding, Uh, Or panthergroup.co forward slash roadmap to funding, and you can download it there.
2: Awesome. I, uh, well, my name is Tanya Griffin, so you can always track me down through LinkedIn. My growth management company, where we do a lot of mentoring of women, build vertically integrated cannabis countries and companies across the state. I
0: love that slip. Vertically integrated cannabis
2: country. Well, that company is uh, Mm -hmm. waterandtrees.com. If you guys are looking for a good orgasm, (laughs) O-O-Y-E-S dot love, my friends. Take the sex quiz. Um, and, you know, my last little thing if you're at anyone listening is concerned about the opiate crisis, I do have a non for profit. We are distributing free Narcan um, very heavily right now in Illinois. If you have a dispensary or a bar or a restaurant or retail store, we will give you a vending cabinet and allow you to um, get Narcan in the hands of anyone that needs it to prevent opiate overdoses. So again, my name is Tanya Griffin. Find me on LinkedIn and get some lube, my friends. Oh, oh, yes, dot love.
1: Well, this has been the Cannabis Marketing Live podcast sponsored by Media Gel. Recover marketing trends and strategies for growing your cannabis business. The next podcast will be airing on Thursday, March 23rd at 11 a.m. PST, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we will be discussing cannabis and science, the dynamic duo of product development with Endocanna Health CEO Len May. So tune in and we will see you next time.